My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. My friends and listeners, this is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, coming to you for another episode of Euripides, Eumenides, a theater history podcast. I want to thank all of you right now, before we even get into the episode for listening today, uh, if you are just with us for the first time, welcome. If you have listened to us for a long time, thanks for sticking around. If you can, to help us grow this podcast, please go to wherever you have picked this thing up and write a review, give us a rating, anything like that. I want to hear what your thoughts are. I love seeing my numbers go up, but I want to hear I want to hear from you. You can also follow me at Euripides Humanities on Instagram. I got some great great content there. I'm also at Trident Theater on TikTok. Okay, enough about that. So, uh, <laughs> I have one of my favorite topics that we're going to be talking about today, and I recently reconnected with an old college buddy. We used to do plays together. We used to do improv together. This is my good old friend, stand-up comedian from LA, Shannon Corder. Hello, Shannon. Hello, Aaron. How are you doing? Oh, it's so great to have you on the show. I'm so excited to do this. And I don't know if every single person says this when they come on, but I love Euripides, Eumenides. Like, if everyone always says that. No, no, I got a fan. Yay. <laughs> Um, so Shannon, uh, we were just talking before the show and, uh, it looks like, uh, you know, COVID happened and you got a, uh, an interesting change in profession. You became a mommy. I did. And it yeah. took me a lot of time and money and science to get to that part. But yeah, he, he was an IVF baby. So we nicknamed him, um, Captain America cause he'd been in the freezer since 2019. <laughs> um and he does have he has a little brother named bucky that is still in a freezer in encino okay. across okay. the street from an ihop not oh, the wow. freezer not the freezer in the ihop no no okay good thank you for clarifying yeah so um <laughs> so yeah when the time is right we'll try for um for kid number two but yeah we've been trying for a really long time and i found out that the pregnancy had taken two days before lockdown oh whoa yeah, I, I hadn't, people didn't, people knew that I was doing IVF and stuff. And so mm -hmm. like, it wasn't, it wasn't a secret or anything, but like, it was like, before the world at large knew that I was pregnant, like I was already shut away from the world. So it was, a, it was a weird experience. I remember 
early on trying to do Zoom yoga. And I just had to, I had to turn off the camera and I started crying because I was all hormonal. And I was like, I'll never, I'll never get to do prenatal yoga, like in the room full of people oh. and stuff. And it was like, it was stupid. Cause it was like, you know, but there's just those little, those little things right. you expect right. to do. You expect to tell strangers not to touch your tummy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you <know? Yeah>. right. <laughs> I never had to do that. So that's good. Well, but, that's good. Yeah. Anyway. In a way it was really cool because I mean, I only just recently started going back to work in person right. like a month or two ago. And so mm-hmm. I've been here for everything for first steps for oh see yeah and so that's really cool i mean yeah we're all gonna have massive separation anxiety (laughs) when we all go into the world but um right right but that part has been really cool that's awesome though i see like i like hearing those kind of stories where yeah sure something got maybe taken away from us but at the same Mm -hmm. time at the same time we got something really great in return you know that's really cool that's really cool and if anybody wants to uh follow the chronicles of shannon and the baby it's one of my favorite instagram handles or social media on everything it's at shannon's boobs so feel free Uh, i'm sure there's a wonderful story there but uh it's easy to remember that's it (laughs) that's the whole story well speaking of coming up with really amazing things after a long mm-hmm. time waiting i am going to go ahead and get into the meat of this episode today because this is uh, yes let's let's get meaty this is legitimately one of my favorite topics to talk about ever oh god yes so uh to start this out i usually have a question but i don't have a question for you today what i will tell people is i gave you a few assignments Mm-hmm. And one of the assignments was to go back and listen to my episode for the era of isms. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that out of absolutely nowhere, you wrote me back, like in the middle of the episode, the line <laughs> Shitsky yes. from King Ubu. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I know where Shannon is now. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, yeah. What What are your reactions to that episode? Oh gosh, it was so much. First of all, I started listening to it, and I was like, "Oh shit, I'm not gonna sound smart." (laughs) 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 Like, part of me was like, "Oh, I need to go research all of these things so that I sound really smart when I'm on it." But then I was like, "Like, no, I'll be the link to the listener." There you go. You know, and then I was like, "Oh, the listeners are probably smarter than me too." No, I'm just kidding. Um, But I. I would, I'm saying like, I will come at it fresh, but yeah, that, that episode was very dense. There was a lot going on there. So for my listeners, you don't have to go back and listen to episode four to get into this episode, but just understand that this is something of a sequel to episode four. And uh, yeah, you'll get a, a, a more in-depth look specifically where we left off there at what theater looked like in Paris in the 1920s. Now, to put it simply, besides being dense, it was weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it went in a lot of directions. Yeah, yeah. And they were so reactionary. Yeah, yeah. It was like, oh, no, that sucks. Let's do the opposite. Let's yeah, say, okay, exactly. no, let's do something totally opposite now. And not just reactionary, like polarizingly reactionary. Yeah. You know, it's like, that didn't work. Let's, instead of playing hockey, let's play football. And, right. you know, it's just that, that far. So, 
I'll try to summarize, but for the past couple decades before the 1920s, European theater artists had really started to reject realism as naturalism as they did not think that those movements appropriately conveyed the human condition and would not allow society to correct the errors in social constructs or institutions. So for simplicity's sake, we'll just call those who rejected realism and naturalism anti-realists. And like you said, there were just a ton of anti-realism movements and so much so that I've already committed an entire episode to it. But at the end of that episode, I said that I'd need to do an entire episode on Antonin Artaud and what he brought to the table. So that's what we're doing today. Oh, good. And I have no idea who that is. You have no, oh my yes. God. Oh, God. Oh, so, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Okay. So, I hope it's good that I don't know. It's absolutely wonderful because the number of WTF moments we're going to have throughout this episode is awesome. just gorgeous. So here we go. On September 4th, 1896, in the French city of Marseille, Antoine Marie Joseph Artaud was born. But very early on, the boy came to be known simply as Antonin Artaud. And Artaud is spelled A-R-T-A-U-D. Okay. His parents, Antoine Wa and Euphazie, were first cousins as their grandmothers were sisters from the city of Smyrna, which is now the Turkish city of Ishmir. Okay. <laughs> so, no starting, shade. Whatever. Starting. Okay, fine. No shade. All right. Arto's parents gave birth to nine children. However, four of them were stillborn. And two others died when they were very young. Mm-hmm. Arto himself struggled with health his entire life, and he was diagnosed with meningitis at the age of five. However, at the turn of the century, meningitis was misdiagnosed fairly often. It's more likely that Arto suffered from something else, but we'll never know what. Plus, <laughs> there wasn't really a treatment for meningitis at the time, so Arto went completely untreated, and he just stayed pretty sickly his whole life. Oh, dang. Yeah, right? <laughs> so like, you got meningitis. Okay, great. There's a cure then? No. You're just going to have to you're just going to have to live with this. You're just going to be sick. <laughs> now, so wait, if I do the count, so wait, they started with 9 kids, they lost 4 in in uh-huh. labor and then two more died. Okay, so they've yep. got 3 kids and one of them is sick with pseudo meningitis. Yes, correct. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. And partly due to this, he was quite a depressed youngster. Mm-hmm. When he had his first mental breakdown at the age of 16, his parents began committing him to a series of sanatoria to treat whatever he might have had. At the age of 20, he dropped treatment as he was conscripted into the French army. So military oh, service that's a was good still- idea. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Like- <laughs> Taken fresh out of the sanitarium. Yeah. Out of multiple yeah. sanitaria. Yeah, we'll go ahead and loosen up the straitjacket just long mm-hmm. enough for you to get your fatigues on. And there you go. However, his service ended very shortly after when he needed to be treated for either, quote, a nervous condition, which is what his mother stated, or for sleepwalking, which is what Arto claimed. Either way, the depression still had a pretty good hold on him. So to treat this, his physician prescribed laudanum, which is an opiate. Uh-huh. And if you know anything about medicine, psychology, or pharmacology, or any mixture of the three, you know that an opiate is an incredibly bad thing to give someone with severe depression. Mm-hmm. For Artaud, 
it basically meant that he was addicted to mind-altering substances for the rest of his life. So this is going to get good. Huh? <laughs> age 20. Age 20. I've already been through numerous sibling deaths. Uh, nobody knows what's wrong with me. I don't have uh, an emo movement to help me fix he this. A, he doesn't have a checkered belt. <laughs> right. that's one of the things i remember from the last the last uh episode not the last episode but the yeah the isms mm -hmm. episode yep yeah you I have mean, to have he, a checkered he, belt to be emo absolutely absolutely so in his 20s what he did have he moved to paris to pursue a life in the arts but yeah. <laughs> he ended up working with quite a few influential directors of stage and screen in these early days of his career, he particularly worked with the anti-realist group known as the Surrealists, both on stage and in film. And in fact, he even wrote several scenarios for avant-garde cinema, 10 of which have survived and only one was ever produced, titled The Seashell and the Clergyman. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? Okay. <laughs> and from what I understand, it wasn't like they were scripts. It was uh -huh. more like they just kind of wrote uh, what the conditions are. Uh, for for the people in the scene and so they filmed that so it's sort of like they're capturing a feeling but yes. like using surreal imagery and stuff yeah, or, yeah 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 you know they might they might have somebody like carrying a, a, a crucifix on his back and then show you a picture of an apple and there's mm -hmm. supposed to be something you extrapolate from that Mm -hmm. So yeah, and then doves flying, and, ooh, and everybody goes, aha, oh. and everybody secretly like, oh my god, does everyone else understand this? <laughs> They're just looking around and going, does anybody get this? And yeah. then you get, ooh, oh yes, wow, ooh, this is very important and impactful, meaningful, <laughs> meaningful. So the seashell and the clergyman is the one that Arto had produced, and at mm -hmm. best, reviews were mixed. Some critics praised Artaud's ability to offer a series of complex imagery as a way to delve deeper into human malfeasance, and in this case, the whole story was about lust. Others basically said that the film was a series of disconnected nonsense, but definitely put his work at this time into the surrealist category. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We're not sure what the hell it is, but it's definitely surreal. So, to oversimplify again... <laughs> The surrealists more or less thought that there was just a thin veneer of air quotes reality laid over what's really going on. Mm -hmm. So basically they combined elements of non-realism and symbolism. And the main sources of the surrealist foundation were synthesized by theater artist André Breton, who was inspired by Sigmund Freud's experiments with dreams mm -hmm. and the subconscious. Mm -hmm. Okay. That was I was just about to ask about the subconscious yep. and surrealism. Yep, yep, absolutely. So basically their aim was to somewhat replicate the results of Freud's experiments in theatrical ways. What could go wrong? <laughs> well, Artaud was getting pretty disenfranchised with surrealism, particularly with the movement's unofficial founder, André Breton. Was it just, it wasn't weird enough for him? Yeah. He's like, y'all, I've been in a sanitarium. I've been in sanitaria. <laughs> I sleptwalked my way through World War One, and then I got addicted to opiates. So, so you guys like this is wearing all, funny this costumes? Is all you have and, is a, mm -hmm. uh, a crucifix and an apple? Come on. Come on. <laughs> Color me not impressed. Yeah. Well, actually, what happened was Breton was growing less artistically motivated and a lot more politically motivated. Mm -hmm. This is so funny. I love this. This is such a Twitter fight. 
So Breton has basically stated that the theater had basically become a privilege only afforded to the bourgeoisie and mm-hmm. therefore could not be for the people who were depended on to start the revolution against the bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. So all this stuff they're putting in the theater, it's only the rich people watching it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we're doing this to protest the rich people. So what the fuck? So very publicly, Breton also started allying himself with the French Communist Party, okay? Uh And we got to remember just a few years before this, there was this huge revolution in Russia where they're Uh all like, oh no, we're communists now. Artaud, on the other hand, was not politically motivated at all, even declaring in print once, I shit on Marxism. (laughs) I mean, that is a political statement, just- right. So how it all shook down was that Breton basically felt that the theater was anti-revolutionary, whereas Artaud felt that the theater was absolutely revolutionary and that Breton was anti-theater. Whoa. Bitch slap. Sick burn. Now, by this time, Artaud had formed his own company, the Théâtre Alfred Jarry, with two other like-minded artists who he'd worked together with over the last several years. And those of you who have heard the show before might recognize the name Alfred Jarry as the playwright of King Ubu. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yes. Shitsky. Shitsky, this little grumpy man who talked to you for 10 minutes before his play and caused I felt riot. so bad for the, <laughs> for the teacher that they used to make fun of when they were kids. <laughs> Yes, uh, listeners, go back and, and, and yeah. check out all the uh, horrible things that Alfred Jarry did to his uh, teacher. So Artaud apparently was a very big fan of Jarry's work, and he named his theater troupe after the late playwright and author, as Jarry had died in 1907. Now, I bring this up as part of Artaud's eventual split from the Surrealist came in the foundational essay of Artaud's that brought the theater Alfred Jarry to life. The essay is titled... The Manifesto for an Abortive Theater. <laughs> oh, Christ. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I can swear, right? Or... Yes, absolutely. Rated E. We've already got there. Yes. I mean, so basically, here's my essay on theater that kills life. <laughs> let's, let's unpack this. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> In this manifesto, Artaud basically writes that the surrealist political intentions are going to go nowhere and that if they really wanted to affect the hearts and minds of people, they'd be better off doing it on stage. Okay. So for this and many other reasons, Breton actually basically excommunicated Artaud from the surrealist movement in 1927. (laughs) You wrote against us, you're out. And actually Breton was also known for losing his temper and banning people from the group time and time again. Uh, so basically, anybody who was a surrealist, he eventually kicked out anyway. <laughs> and unfortunately, the theater of uh, Jarry disbanded in 1929 after only three years in which the company only held four productions. Hmm. Now, Breton was not the only artist that Artaud studied with. Artaud actually had been a member of many troops and began synthesizing a lot of their ideals into what would eventually become his collected ideals about theater. Oh my God. Artaud was on the cusp of something strange and new. After working in both theater and film for many years, he began to feel that theater and film were getting stagnant, that they weren't causing the effect on humanity as it might have done in ancient Greece or the Renaissance. 
you know, where like you go and you watch Oedipus realize that he's killed his father and married his mother and it affects the entire world because now their king is disgraced. Now there's going to be this huge change in regime. It, it's supposed to be huge and impactful and effective. That wasn't happening in theater anymore, according to Arto, and it needed a complete reboot. Waiting to see what the reboot is going to be. Yeah, okay. In some of his studies during the 1920s, some of his mentors got him interested in Asian theater styles. Oh, okay. There was something appealing to Arto about the way that, like, in Kabuki, gesture mm-hmm could express so much more than just these paltry words that we are, you know, just assigned. Arto took in as much, and I'm putting air quotes here because this is what he said, oriental theater mm-hmm. as he could. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's, it was the time. It was the thing of the day. And I, <laughs> okay, I'll get into this in just a bit. It was while he was attending the Paris Colonial Exposition in 1931, Arto's epiphany finally hit. He attended a dance performance by a company from Bali. Have you ever seen mm-hmm. one, Shannon? Mm-mm. No? Okay. I don't think Gosh. so. There are so many cool uh, dancing styles uh, mm-hmm. from Southeast Asia and like Malaysia and everything. As far as Balinese dance is concerned, there's three, mm-hmm. big, uh, three big traditions and only one of which is really religious and ritualistic. And this is the type that our toe attended. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so kind of uh, an overglossing. He saw this one thing, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of historians out there who are like, he either classically misunderstood what he was watching, <laughs> or he just took from it what he could get out of it to create his thing. So this type he attended usually tells stories from religious texts or they're inspired by religious mm-hmm. texts. And like I said, they're dance performances, so they're tr- pretty much totally told with movement and and sound but the costumes that they have they're extravagantly detailed Mm -hmm. like you know hair and grass and uh and all kinds of like um you know uh tassels and everything Mm -hmm. just so completely uh, detailed um and sometimes they'll have vibrant makeup or headpieces that are like two or three feet tall. I mean, uh-huh. it's just, he, he's just watching this and it's just like, it's just an absolute assault on the senses. And the movement is quite methodical and quite hypnotic. And most of this is set to gamelan music. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that was my second assignment to you to listen to yes. some music from the gamelan. Yes. So, so Shannon... What did gamelan music sound like to you? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not a rock band from the 70s and 80s because if you spell, if you put one letter wrong, there is a band called like gamelan or something. <laughs> and I was like, what? How? And I, for, I was very confused for a while thinking and, that they had... And I don't think, don't think they were very good either. <laughs> I, I would assume, no. No, yeah. okay, so... Uh, Gamelan, Gamelan. Is, is a a performing group mm-hmm. that is all chimes and gongs. Yeah, and yeah, like little metal drums and and bells and yes. Yeah, and I and I actually have played in one. <gasps> what? I, yeah, I had I not like professionally or like oh, okay. I, for like one time. 
one okay. time. Okay. There was this like when I was, I want to say 14 or 15, there was like this enrichment day for this group that I was a part of. And it was weird because also it was the same day I learned about virtual reality and everyone was really confused. <laughs> they were trying to explain. Anyway, this is this would have been in the early 90s. But then they had someone had brought in like a whole gamelan set. And and the thing is like they probably gave us a really easy one because we were like a bunch of 14 year olds or whatever, but it oh, was yeah. just okay. like, okay, so you're going to do this part. Like every, everybody was sort of like a cog in the machine. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you're going to play these four notes over and over again. And, right. and it is, right. it is more of like a feeling than yeah. it, like yeah. it, it didn't have like, when I went back and looked at the music, like it was um, less about like a melody and more of like it was it's it seemed very repetitive and it didn't make you feel relaxed <laughs> no no because it is it is frankly like a lot of people would compare it to clanking pots and pans mm -hmm. it's, and it's, if you had a lot of them yes <laughs> but like played in a very deliberate way and i think it's it almost feels and and some of this is a difference between western music and eastern music you know yes, there's like certain yes. intervals we're used to that are pleasing to the ear and so on. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe this is what you listen to to go to sleep at night on your call now. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, but for some of these dances, you know, they were talking about very uh, frenzied or uh, very intense moments in the story. Yeah. So like the speed would go up. And so basically yeah. like the the amount of time between clangs on pots got really short. So it sounded like and yeah, that was really attractive to our toe. Yeah, well, if he wants to, <laughs> if he wants to make his audience feel uncomfortable the way Oedipus uh -huh. makes yep. the audience feel yep. uncomfortable, then there yeah. we go. So, being a Westerner, and as Westerners are more likely to do, our toe more or less misunderstood that the Balinese dance had no language. It did have language; they spoke words. He just didn't understand them. Mm -hmm. uh, but he felt that the story was told through the power of gestures and what he considered basically guttural utterances from the dancers instead of actual words. Oh my god! It's like they're just speaking nonsense. This it's amazing. Is the, this is the height of, of appropriation. <laughs> Yep, and add that to the musical accompaniment, which is the gamelan, and mm -hmm. I mean, it's just basically a varied arrangement of metal drums that are clanging around. Mm -hmm. So what Arto extrapolated out of this was a new method of presenting theater. Mm -hmm. What he saw was a beautiful assault on the senses, and this is exactly what he felt we needed. <laughs> Beautiful assault on the senses. Yep. So here's, here's, here's a quote from one of his, he had several manifestos, but I love this quote. An idea of the theater has been lost. And as long as the theater limits itself to showing us intimate scenes from the lives of a few puppets, transforming the public into peeping toms, it is no wonder the elite abandon it and the great public looks to the movies, the music hall, or the circus for violent satisfactions mm. whose intentions do not deceive them. Mm. <laughs> so you go into a movie knowing you're going to be lied to. We in the theater don't know right now. We're lying to people. By trying to show this representation of life, we, right. we're, not, we're not even getting close. 
So basically he's saying the theater had lost its way through trying to dive so deeply into realism and naturalism and not being able to present air quotes life, as he called it, the theater was basically lying to the world. So let me explain. I use that air quotes life for our toe. Life is not what we experience every day. And here's a quote from him. Life is a threshold between reality and the dark forces behind it. Wow. <laughs> right? <Whoa>. <laughs> okay, so something's controlling me. I know about it. I can't see it or feel it. Or I might be addicted to opiates. Uh, I might be addicted no. to opiates. The <laughs> only way, the only way I can understand reality is to get completely fucked. Uh, <laughs> according to Arto, the only way to experience life would be to enact what he considered cruelty upon the audience. You have to be cruel to your audience. Thus, our toes theories came to be known as the theater of cruelty. Okay, I remember you talking about the theater oh, of cruelty. Oh my yeah. God, oh my God. Here we go. Damn. Oh, Jesus. All right. I feel I'm going to have to do this quite a bit to describe what Arto meant, but I have to do it piece by piece. So sure. as far as the cruelty is concerned, he didn't necessarily mean physical violence upon the audience. It's not like they sit down in the audience and you hit them over the head with a hammer several times. Okay. Arto actually used the term, the metaphysics of cruelty. So basically an audience comes to a play with the understanding that they're in a relatively safe space where mm -hmm. they may be able to enjoy what they see on stage. And if all goes well, they may see a story in which a good moral lesson can be interpreted and discussed at a later time. Okay? That's okay. kind of how we know it today. You know, it's like, you know, if you know West Side Story, you know it doesn't end very happily. But when you go, you're like, you know, at the end of this, I'm going to get kind of a good cleansing, purging sensation. Right, right. right. Okay. That's, your, that's your expectation. Yeah, yeah. Okay. This wouldn't do for Arto. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in his theater, in order for an audience to get anything out of the production, they would need to have their hold on reality and consciousness broken away completely. God. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, these things that your reality, your mm -hmm. hold on consciousness and reality is keeping at bay this is where evil lives. And once we can break that consciousness and reality, the evil can express itself and we can figure out how to address it. So sort of like a Jungian kind of shadow self yes. kind of thing, yes. but a little bit more violent, not like oh, a little bit. Yeah. making friends with the shadow self more like- Right, right, okay. So yes, very psychological. Maybe, maybe you're in an unhappy marriage and you can't find a way out. Maybe mm -hmm. you want to kill your boss and that anger grows daily. Maybe you're so sick of having next to nothing that stealing seems like a better and better idea. I mean, there are there's a reason you don't do these things, right? Mm -hmm. It would it wouldn't be proper to do so. So you suppress them. So Arto is contesting that theater can change the world, but it's going to take an absolute war on your senses in order to do it. Does he want to make the world better or does he, I mean, I'm getting like dark night vibes. It's very Like much. he, some men want to watch the world burn. He, like they're all mad. They just need a little push. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yes, exactly. That's exactly where he is. And is this it, it, like, are the audiences like unsuspecting? Like, do they think they're coming to West Side Story, but they're really. 
kind of. I mean, of, I would, I would I mean, assume after ten years they would be like, yeah. okay, yeah, this is this is this guy's thing. But. Yeah, and and since at that time, like you know, you are starting to get into musical theater and comedies and and you know, just like. Uh, uh, variety shows and stuff vaudeville mm-hmm. was still kind of prevalent at the time uh i mean this is also the time when minstrel shows were still pretty popular mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so so i mean you have your light fare but it's not doing anything for people it's mm-hmm. just fluff that's mm-hmm. where he's coming from and he's going right. no this absolutely is something that can change everything we just have to do it in a new way because the way we're doing it is making people completely complacent Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay so here's some ways in which arto suggests we need to change things (laughs) these are the ways upon which he inflicts his his cruelty yeah yep okay Okay. language arto believed that the theater had become somewhat imprisoned by its unwavering loyalty or perhaps enslavement to text uh-huh. <laughs> so the words I see where this saying, is going okay. okay since words can be interpreted in just so many ways our toe determined that in order to pe- for people to have their walls taken down the language that our toe felt that we practically revere must be reinvented for the stage so taken from his interpretation of the balinese dance mm-hmm. gesture is much more evocative than the spoken word. Plus, according to Arto, words have been ingrained in culture to have just a few specific meanings for each word, whereas sounds to accompany specific gesture can create something of a language with much more purpose. It sounds really interesting. I mean, I can see it. I'm like, yeah, that's really cool. The sounds that he wanted to employ. (laughs) Oh God, I'm going to get into it here in a little bit. Here's what you see in here besides the performers in his theater first of all we have to remove all scenery as it's fixed and unchangeable and represents nothing okay okay don't do it and we replace any scenic elements with symbolic costumes or props or anything that can actually be manipulated so some of the best experiences i've seen with this like you have one sheet that's like hanging from a curtain rod or something and you can manipulate that you can move it and it can do stuff it's not just a thing it's you mm-hmm. know it's not just sheet on curtain rod okay lighting should include quote vibrating shredded light <laughs> <laughs> okay shredded light okay shredded light vibrating anything that will be disarming okay, okay. so it's kind of like <laughs> At work today, there was a, uh, an accidental fire alarm that went off, mm-hmm. and we got back in the building, and the lights on the walls just kept flicking. Oh, yeah. And you know that feeling where you're just like, mm-hmm. God, it's so freaking bright, and it's so invasive, and it's like, mm-hmm. it's just constant. And the fact that it's on a rhythm, too, you're mm-hmm. like, oh, geez. Or, you know, like a fluorescent light might go out in an office, and it's yeah. just kind, kind of buzzing, and you're like, yeah. oh, God. Oh. That's what he wanted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that <kind of> feeling. <laughs> and uh-huh. at one point oh god i read about this at one point he also tried to match foot, footsteps to strobe light flashes so oh, wow. the sound of a footstep would also be a flash of light boom 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 and it's just this uh, crazy bright light oh sound how about this quote whereas most people remain impervious to subtle discourse 
They cannot resist effect of physical surprise, the dynamism of cries and violent movements, visual explosions. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So basically, anything that's going to rattle your cage is okay to hear. Okay? Anything. It can be screams. It can be trash can lids banging together. It can be explosions. It can be the breaking of a bunch of plates or glasses. Anything. Oh, God. And, and, and yeah, so that's what he wanted. Just flashes of light. You, you should be disoriented. Uh, that's the effect. Okay? And my guess is that he was inspired by the gamelan used in mm-hmm, Balinese mm-hmm. dance. Just this controlled sense of chaos. Okay. So basically for our toe theater was almost nothing but spectacle, a massive attack on the senses. And if he could use smells, I'm sure he would. Yeah. And probably did. Yeah. Those, uh, <laughs> yeah. The entrails oh. and the, uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just like, let's put rotten eggs in a box mm-hmm. and at certain times we'll open the box and that smell will get in here and we'll have a fan blowing it on people. Anything that just made you go, (laughs) Now, audience placement and theater structures. Okay. Oh, to hell with them. Right. (laughs) If you're sitting in a house with a proscenium, you know, that that wall where the curtain hangs that divides you from the action, Mm -hmm. throw that away. Because basically that just divides the actors and the audience. In Artaud's perfect world, the audience would be placed in the middle of the action. Oh, yikes. And the events of the play would happen around them. And everyone would stare at them. Well, they- uh, <laughs> yes. So if you go back and listen to my episode 15, my uh, my guest is Stephanie Koltiska. She's still teaching mm-hmm. dance at Sheridan College here in, in Sheridan, Wyoming. And I just went to her last dance concert. Mm-hmm. And I've gotten to know some of her students this year and they're really sweet kids. The whole show was called Perspective. Mm-hmm. And it was like, how do you view yourself in this world, in this space? Like when you're out there on stage and you're dancing, you feel it. But then like, if they show you a video of it, you're like, oh, that's not what I was feeling at all. Yeah. yeah. So there, it was kind of an attempt to like, you know, show yourself that what your perspective is of yourself. Mm-hmm. Boy, do I love modern technology, especially video calls like we're on right yeah. now yeah in the middle of that show to help one of the dancers who had to go off and make a change of costume there was this extra long piece of music and at some point each one of the people in the dance ensemble stopped walked to the apron of the stage sat down on it and stared directly at the audience oh my god <laughs> and then oh this is so great shannon and then you see a little camera because it's at a college. And so, you know, it can film oh. for like, uh, you know, seminars or, or mm-hmm. you know, so it focuses out on the audience and then behind the dancers, the entire audience is projected up on the screen behind them. Oh God, that makes me so uncomfortable to see. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing though. And this, this, is, this is exactly Artodian influence, okay? I can just, I'm trying to imagine what the, um, so wait, were you at this live? Or do you, yeah. you saw, yeah. okay. So like, yeah. I'm trying to imagine the audience as they're kind of like uh-huh. seeing what's happening. 
and like some maybe uncomfortable giggles or yeah, something. Yeah, so, so there's some giggles and then you might see somebody like move in their seat and that person catches their movement in the uh-huh. camera and they d- might not have any idea where they are, but now they are hyper aware of where they are and that they can be seen by everybody. <laughs> and then there's that one one person that like their way of dealing with being uncomfortable is to be like, Whoa! Yeah, exactly. There's like yep. that one person, they're the same person that probably brought a laser pointer in yep. the first mm-hmm. and they're like, hey, look yep. at me. But most people are like looking away. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want to see their shadow self. That's why. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> they don't want to confront what might be just beneath the surface. Mm-hmm. And after that concert, it was so funny. Several of the dancers come up to me and they're like, was that too long? It was like, absolutely not. I loved mm. every second of that because mm-hmm. if, oh my man, if you're making the audience somewhat uncomfortable, you're doing your job right. That's my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Have you heard the phrase, um, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable? <laughs> no, that, but I love not about, it. Uh, I've heard it a couple of times about giving church sermons. So I, um, I oh, go to okay. a Unitarian Universalist church and it's hard to explain what that is, but it's basically, yeah. I call it organized agnosticism. But okay. um, anyway, uh, so I've, I've spoken a couple of times in church and, and that's something it's like being, be, trying to, trying to give something that meets people where they're at. Oh, okay. But, and the idea is, you know, if people are too comfortable to just, you know, needle them and, and a call to action, but it sounds like in this case, it's, oh, your dog is so cute. Look at yes. Okay. Eyes. There we go. Yep. That's yep. my biscuit. She's a it's sweetie. And we found out she is a boxer shepherd. Oh, cool. Did you do one of those DNA tests? Yeah. Yeah. Did the swab and everything, sent it off. And she is a boxer shepherd. Did she get a DNA test and she's 100% that bitch? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Well, she is a female dog. So it's very technically, but that's, that is confining ourselves to a definition. And that's not what our toe would have wanted. (laughs) So, uh, yeah. So, so yes. So, so afflicting the comfortable. This yeah. doesn't sound like there's any comforting happening no, here. No, but yeah. no, because w- what he's really trying to do is get down to this base self that you're ignoring mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. trying to help you release whatever inner demons are holding you back from being a better person. Well, he doesn't sound like he has a plan for what you do once the demons are released. No, no, there's no <laughs> there's no plan, but that's that's where the work is. Like, I've, I've often said it, Shannon, like, one of my favorite things to do with theater is ask questions. In fact, mm-hmm. that's what we are supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So let's say you go and see Streetcar Named Desire. Okay. Mm-hmm. Great play, but you're talking about people who are holding on to former versions of themselves. Mm-hmm. You're talking about the struggle of masculine sexuality and the, the toxicity it can bring mm-hmm. about. You know, I mean, these are very uncomfortable topics, mm-hmm. but- as as theater artists, you know, we're supposed to be asking you, hey, audience, is this okay? You know, uh, is what you're watching something that you don't want to happen in the real world? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I bring up West Side Story again. I mean, you have mm-hmm. these kids who just feel completely disaffected and, and disconnected to their society. And so the way that they lash out is violent. Yeah. And, and then eventually uh, some of them end up dead. And you're mm-hmm. like, hey, can we help these kids out? Yeah. Is that, you know, I mean, uh, so, mm-hmm. uh, so I think what Arto is doing here is he's saying we as a society are sick mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we need to correct what 
whatever it is. And it's probably something individual, but we might, several of us might be suffering from the same thing. I don't know. Bring it to the surface so it can be addressed. Yeah. Yeah. Step one is not pretending everything is okay. Exactly. But with banging pans and strobes. Banging pan, (laughs) screaming, made up languages. He'd often speak in tongues. As I was doing my research, one of my favorite words that came up was glossolalia. Oh my. And people were like, I can't really define what it is, but it's uh, to me, it sounds like, well, glossal, that's something with the tongue in the throat. So, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it's just gibberish, you know, mm-hmm. and that's how people talk when they're moving around to these bright lights that are flashing on and off and uh, there's horrific sound happening all the time. But it's, is this all like carefully crafted? Like is, I mean, there's oh. probably not a script, but is, is this improv or is this? Well, here we go. Writing and adapting. Okay. According to Artaud, the stories told in the theater must be epic in scale, magical or mythical. And as, oh, there's baby. Yep, there's baby. (laughs) He's eating lasagna right now. That is exactly the sound I would expect a toddler to make Mm -hmm. when eating Mm -hmm. lasagna. And that's a sound that I could record and put in Artaudian theater. Mm there it goes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those mournful wails, but they're mm. not mournful. I know that's a kid enjoying his dinner. All right. So the stories told in theater must be epic in scale, magical or mythical. <laughs> Later in his life, one of his first writings he would do at a very pivotal point in his life was retell the chapter in Alice in Wonderland where Alice talks to Humpty Dumpty. And at the end of the chapter, Humpty Dumpty falls off the wall, gets broken into a thousand pieces and his put back together again. In our toes play, he just falls and is destroyed. Of course. Of course. <laughs> But it's taking this magical story that a lot of people know and turning it darkly on its ear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right? Yeah. Okay. So very similar to the Greek theater, like I was saying earlier, the world is supposed to be vastly affected by the plight of the tragic hero. So in the theater of cruelty, the story must either be big enough to make an impact or it must render long-held comforts to shreds. Mm-hmm. And that's where, Shannon, we are going to do a reading of Artaud's play oh god a spurt of blood (laughs) oh my god okay okay so i'm sending this to you i forgot there was a reading part oh this is great so friends and listeners this is what i'm gonna do shannon and i have several parts to play I'm going to try to, we're going to do this as kind of like a radio play, okay? And I'm going to read my characters in different voices. Shannon has a few characters she's going to read. And uh, I'm going to read all of the uh, points of action or, you know, the the scenic description as well. So this is Arto's play called The Spurt of Blood, which he wrote in 1925 before he started any of these theories before he started the theater of Frejarie. And this is the best thing we have to know what was on his damn mind. <laughs> All right. My first character is young man and Shannon's first character is girl. Here we go. The spurt of blood. I love you and everything is fine. You love me and everything is fine. The young man lower. I love you. And everything is fine. You love me and everything is fine. The young man suddenly turns aside. I love you. Silence. Young man says, face me. The girl faces him. There. 
young man on an exalted high-pitched tone. I love you! <laughs> I am great! I am lucid! I am full! I am dense! The girl, same high-pitched tone. <laughs> we are intense! Ah, oh, what a well-made world! Silence. Noise like a huge wheel spinning, blowing out wind. A hurricane comes between them. At that moment, two stars collide and a succession of limbs of flesh fall. Then feet, hands, scalps, masks, colonnades, porticos, temples, and alembics falling slower and slower as if through space. Then three scorpions, one after the other, and finally a frog and a scarab, which lands with heartbreaking, nauseating slowness. The young man at the top of his voice. Heaven's gone crazy! Looks up at the sky. Let's run off. And he pushes the girl off ahead of him. <laughs> Next, a medieval knight in enormous armor enters, followed by a wet nurse holding her bosom up with her hands and panting because of her swollen breasts. <sighs> Leave your teats alone. <laughs> Hand me my papers. Oh, oh, oh. What's the matter with you, damn it? Our girl there, with him. Shush, there's no girl there. I tell you, they are fucking. And what do I care if they are fucking? Letcher! Balloon! And the wet nurse thrusts her hands in her pockets as big as her breasts. Pimp! She tosses his papers over hastily. Filter! Let me eat! The wet nurse runs off. He gets up and pulls a huge slice of Gruyere cheese out of each paper. Mm. He suddenly coughs and chokes. The knight, with his mouth full, Ip, Ip. Bring your breasts over here. Bring your breasts over here. Now where's she gone? He runs off and the young man returns. Young man says, I saw, I knew, I understood. Here is the main square, the priest, the cobbler, the vegetable stalls, the church portals, the red light, the scales of justice. I can't go on. A priest, a cobbler, a beetle, a whore, a judge, and a barrel woman advance into the stage like shadows. Young man. I have lost her. Bring her back. And everyone on a different tone. Young man. My wife. Did I give you the beetle? Are you the yes. beetle? Okay. Yes. All right. So you're the beetle. Go. Your wife, huh? Joker. Joker. She might be yours. Beetle strikes his forehead. He could be right. Beetle runs off. The priest steps forward next and puts his arm around the young man's shoulders. The priest, as if confessing someone, says, What part of her body did you refer to most often? To God? <laughs> the priest, disconcerted at this reply, immediately assumes a Swiss accent. I don't know if you have a Swiss accent on you. Uh, we, it could be we don't any, have to do it. Yeah, but that's out of date. We don't <laughs> look at it that way. You'll have to ask the volcanoes and earthquakes about that. We gratify ourselves with man's minor indecencies in the confessional. There it is. That's all. That's life. And the young man, very impressed. Ah, that's it. That's life. Well, it's a mess. And the priest <laughs> stole the Swiss accent. Of course. It suddenly becomes night. 
the earthquakes, thunder rages, lightning zigzagging everywhere, and it flashes light up the characters who run about, bump into one another, fall down, get up again, and run like mad. At a given moment, a huge hand seizes the whore's hair, which catches fire and swells up visibly. And a gigantic voice says, Bitch, look at your body! The whore's body appears completely naked and hideous under her blouse and skirt, which turn transparent. The whore says, God, they got me! She bites God's wrists. Mm. A great spurt of blood slashes across the stage while in the midst of the brightest lightning flash, we see the priest making the sign of the cross. When the lights come up again, the characters are all dead and the corpses lie all over the ground. Only the whore and young man are left, devouring each other with their eyes. The whore falls into the young man's arms and with a sigh, as if in an orgiastic climax, Tell me how it happened. The young man hides his head in his hands. The wet nurse returns carrying the girl under her arms like a parcel. The girl is dead. She drops on the ground where she sprawls out and becomes flat as a pancake. The wet nurse's breasts are gone. Her chest is completely flat. At that moment... The knight enters and throws himself on the wet nurse, shaking her violently and with a terrible voice, where did you put it? Give me my gruyere. The wet nurse says brazenly, here. She lifts up her dress. The young man wants to run off, but he freezes like a paralyzed puppet. And the young man says in a ventriloquist voice, as if hovering in midair, don't hurt mummy. The knight says, damn her. He hides his face in horror. And this has to be my favorite stage description I've ever seen. (laughs) A host of scorpions crawl out from under the wet nurse's dress and start swarming in her vagina, which swells and splits, becomes transparent and shimmers like the sun. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's bring it home. (laughs) The young man, yep, we got one more line here. The young man and the whore fly off like mad, and the girl, who is dead, gets up, dazzled, and says, The virgin. Ah, that's what he was looking for. End of show. (laughs) Curtain. Okay. (laughs) A few questions. Uh Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) This is on stage. Yep. How The scorpions and the vagina, how is that? First of all, let me just say I have headphones on, so my husband can only hear <laughs> half of this. But what's funny is, like, if he could hear the other half, it would not make any more He's probably no. going to be like, what the fuck was that later? <laughs> can you uh, tell me about um, the uh, I know they're fucking line? Okay. Yeah. Jesus. Like, oh, do, do you know what this is a story about? Well, okay, the frogs and the scorpion is sort mm-hmm. of like a Aesop's fable kind of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the scarab beetle makes me think of like the plague or Egypt or something. Okay. All right. I don't know. It is the age from birth to death of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you said make vocal responses <laughs> there's no way that people could see my okay. face my face was like this Whoa? <laughs> <laughs> it is the 
it starts with Adam okay. and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Okay, okay. Okay, you have these, they're, they obviously love each other, but he's looking for something. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. You have everything given to him by God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Falls from the sky. Is this what you want? Limbs? Do you want uh, frogs? <laughs> and do you want uh, scorpions? How about, how about uh, uh, scarab? Yep. More okay. limbs of flesh, please. <laughs> All images from ancient religions mm-hmm. okay okay he got all that then we have uh masculinity and femininity mm-hmm. with the knight and the wet nurse mm-hmm. and their toxic dependence on one another mm-hmm. then the apocalypse happens okay with an earthquake and everything and everybody's in the afterlife okay kind of going okay did we fulfill our purpose I don't know. And then the man, the young man finds the whore and that's mm-hmm. what he was looking for. His existence was to find a whore. Okay. <laughs> so humanity, humanity, your entire purpose is corrupt. <laughs> and it's best that you get on board with that right now. <laughs> you really have to dig to get that meaning, but my God, what a play. <laughs> Well, it certainly is not. No one in the audience is going to sit through that and like look at their watch. Yeah, <laughs> no, like, no, definitely. Like, what, what the and there's also in the text you sent me. There's a um, there's a picture. Yeah. Of people yeah. like with bags on their heads or something. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Or... I think that one. I think that one is uh, supposed to be the knight with his big armor, okay. his big you know the helmet. No. So wait, is that the entire? That that's the entire is, play. That's not a, okay, okay. That's the entire play. Yeah, come see my and play. So the wet nurses bursting with scorpions from her vagina. Yeah, how about that? How about that? Well, the scorpions get in there first. They swarm, and then her vagina splits and separates and becomes As transparent one. and shimmers As like the does. sun. That's what happens yeah, whenever yeah, my vagina that's... fills with scorpions. <laughs> <laughs> Every it's time. Inevitable. God, I'm I'm in the bathroom. The husband sees the light come from under the door and he goes, (laughs) oh shit, the scorpions are back. (laughs) Oh man. Oh, so yeah, there you go. It's going to be a long night. Major and massive on scale, but only about 10 minutes long at best if you do it right. But you should have been shaken to your core mm-hmm. by that play. My toddler really liked it though. I turned around <laughs> on point to be like, is he scared? And he was like, yay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did have to do this silly voices. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So that was 1925. Okay. He wrote that. It never got performed in his lifetime. Is that because it's impossible? That's <laughs> <laughs> because the technology the technology still does not exist. <laughs> okay, we're gonna get into that. We're gonna get okay. into that later. Okay. Yeah. Um, he tried to apply these methods to a play that are, had already been written. It was written mm-hmm. by per- Percy B. Shelley, and it's called The Chenchi, and it's about this uh, Italian family who. Um, it's like no, that's I, a Pokemon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, well i guess uh when it was originally written oscar wilde even said this is actually the purpose for drama when he saw that show Mm -hmm. okay um other people weren't as boastful about it and knowing oscar wilde he could have just been being bitchy or catty but Mm -hmm. but, yeah Mm -hmm. Uh uh-huh anyway when arto directed it uh it was a 
pretty failed experiment. So while some critics seem baffled but inspired, most of them were baffled and appalled because he didn't really focus on the story so much, but the fact that the story centers around a family who has been plagued by incest. And he's like, oh, this will speak to the people. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> well, this is a way that I can mess with everybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> With that, with his frequent disagreements with the European theater community, the European society all by itself, like just he was not feeling Europe. He His theater wasn't exactly making the splash he wanted, and he still wasn't getting that truth that he was looking for with mm-hmm. theater, you know, that, mm-hmm. that thing that is like, if we can just peel this off, we're going to be fine. So Artaud uh, t- turned his attentions elsewhere. Mexico. <laughs> oh, there's so much more he can culturally appropriate down there. <laughs> well, check this out. This is so fantastic. Yes, I mean some of the stuff he wrote back on his trip from this trip. I'm just like, mm-hmm. ooh, oh, that's oh. Can- that's cancel worthy. Um, <laughs> uh, now he often stated that he wanted to see a culture that was devoted to the myth and ritual that he wanted to embody with his theater. You know, okay. I mean, and, and by ritual, what I mean is like, I think I've talked about it a couple of times on this episode or on, on this show, but there have been theater artists who are like, you know, there are rituals when you go to church that when you do them, you go into it and you come out of it feeling different. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I think of like um, uh, for Christians on Ash Wednesday, you know, mm-hmm. you come in on a Wednesday evening and you get ashes painted in a cross on your forehead mm-hmm. and you're supposed to feel change from that it's supposed to help you feel closer to your god and the and what he was going through at that point in his mm-hmm. journey right okay so i get that that's what our toe wanted he wanted that ritual like you come in there's something that happens that's ritualized it happens the same way every time and you feel better for it mm-hmm. okay so he was looking for a culture that did that because he had stated that quote europe had lost its way mm-hmm. and he longed to also a quote, voyage to the land of speaking blood. Whoa. <laughs> and of course, his mental illnesses were starting to get the better of him before he left. So starting whether, to. <laughs> yeah, right. Whether or not he's speaking poetically or in the mm-hmm. language of a disenfranchised artist in the throes of schizophrenia, I'll let you be the judge. <laughs> Either way. It's widely believed that Artaud meant for this to affirm his idea that the mass revolution he wanted to invoke would be internal rather than external. So he needed to experience the revolution for himself first. Okay. So while he's traipsing around Mexico, he finds himself in a mountain range where he writes that he swore himself off heroin. Okay. He had some with him and he's like, no, to hell with this. I'm done with this. That's how heroin works. You just decide one day. Uh, (laughs) I'm done. So he found himself living with the Tarahumara tribe, and today they're known as the Raramuri. Okay. There he experimented with peyote. Okay, so he just switched up mind-altering substances. He didn't go cold turkey. Okay. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. I mean, he did it for a very specific reason. Mm -hmm. Like, his addiction to opiates and his addiction to all these other things that he had throughout his life, those were just to be a temporary fix. Mm-hmm. peyote was part of a rite and a ritual through the Tarahumara tribe. So he thought he was going to have some sort of vision quest. Right. 
and he did it for about three years. Okay. <laughs> Lived with his tribe. Wow. Eventually, and they put up with him. <laughs> they put up with him. And they're like, I think it was more entertaining. They're like, let's get oh, the yeah. white, let's get the white man smashed again. You feel do that thing with the banging and with the pots and the screaming again. And <laughs> so three years in Mexico, returns home to France. When he gets there, he's given a gift. And I'm going to try to wrap this up here a little bit. We've just got a little bit more to go in the life of our toe. But when he gets back home to France, he's given a gift of a walking stick. And I can't tell you because the research that I did told me several different things. What he believed was that this stick was either the personal walking stick of Jesus Christ or St. Patrick, and it needed to be returned to Ireland naturally okay so he booked passage on a ship went to ireland started roaming around and like i gotta get this somewhere he made such a damn stink over there everybody's like okay get the fuck out of ireland please just get the hell and he was like no i have to get this done i have to do this it's for the good of humanity well yeah that's gonna be indiana jones five is you know the walking (laughs) that's the relic the walking stick of jesus Don't let the Nazis get a hold of the walking stick of Jesus. (laughs) So they actually had him deported. Oh. And when he got on the boat, he caused such a commotion that they actually had to restrain him in a straight jacket. (laughs) You're going to say they threw him overboard. (laughs) (laughs) Just get the fuck up. (laughs) And yeah, on the return trip, straight jacket. And then from then on, when he got back to France, he more or less lived the rest of his life in asylums. Mm. Yeah. 1938, while he's still living in an asylum, he publishes his most well-known work, The Theater and its Double, in which he fully lays out his plan for the theater of cruelty. It's published while he was institutionalized. That, that is awesome. One of my favorite lines from this is, the theater has been created to drain abscesses collectively <laughs> god the abscess of yeah. the soul now when he says the theater and the double mm-hmm. the double refers to that truth that life that dark force that always mm-hmm. just seemed out of reach for our toe but we're mm-hmm. massively at work in influencing our reality mm-hmm. so it's like theater gives us this gateway to it we've just got to feel be able to get ourselves there In 1947, nine years later, he records a piece called To Have Done with the Judgment of God. And it is one of the best attempts that we know of, of him trying to commit his theater to sound. Okay. Okay. He had recorded it to play on French radio, and the work never got played. The first time he did it, the guy goes, I'm not playing this shit. Uh, (laughs) But that same guy goes, you know, maybe I just don't understand it. And so he convened a panel to listen to it. And all of them were given a private listening and the work still never got played on the radio. Mm -hmm. But all of this panel of very good contemporary uh, artists, big brains, they were really favorable of the work, despite the scatological references, mm-hmm. as well as anti-religious and anti-American sentiments, mm-hmm. especially after World War II. We're talking about France in World War II, and you're putting anti-American stuff into your thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, no. Okay. 
Uh, one report out of this, uh, and I couldn't find a source for this. Uh, it says, Artaud had utilized various somewhat alarming cries, screams, grunts, onomatopoeia, and glossolalia. <laughs> I mean, I, I want to imagine it just, ah! oh! <laughs> uh! whack, wham, boom. <laughs> and at the end of it, all these French artists are going, you know, I think he's onto something. <laughs> I mean, it's so easy to laugh at, but at the same time, you're like, I I do see a method in this madness. Yeah. yeah. And oh. well, I'm sure I don't know if I'm jumping the gun, but yeah. I'm really curious because I'm sure the people look back on this from later years and are like, let's do that. Let's perform that. Yeah. Like, how do we make okay. the scorpions come out of the vagina? How do we do this? Yeah. Um, yep. And I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, closing it out here on Arto's life, 1948, he's diagnosed with colorectal cancer and died on March 4th, having accidentally overdosed himself with chloral hydrate. What is chloral hydrate? I don't think it's anything too terrible, but okay. if it's, it's not like an opiate or a drug or anything. I think he was just giving himself some medicine and he overdid it. He was living in something of a halfway house at the time. It was a mental institution still, but he was able to, you know, go out for the day and come back. It's just, you know, it was like, it was the, kind of like a hospital hotel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's where he died. So his legacy. <laughs> He's been an inspiration for a number of movements throughout the next several decades. I mean, we mm -hmm. wouldn't have had... Uh, Beckett and absurdism with waiting for Godot right after that. Mm -hmm, we wouldn't mm -hmm. have had Harold Pinter with his, you know, incredibly sparse dialogue with incredibly deep hidden subtext with it. I can think of Peter Brook uh, in, in the British stage. In fact, they tried to do a whole series of theater of cruelty, but here's, here's where I say his influence is still in the theater as a whole. Because after I finished writing this last night, I'm like, woo, okay, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to watch a movie. I sat down and started watching 300, you know, the Gerard Butler movie about uh -huh. Spartans and everything. And I could see his influence in everything. Really? Okay. There was one thing. Oh, I didn't even put it in here. It was, um, there was something where he felt that if in the theater you watch an event happening to somebody else, like a horribly violent event, Mm -hmm. You feel it stronger than it have actually happened to you. Huh. You hear that about people who might have been mugged or something like that. You know, it affects them. They have PTSD for years to come. But if you watch it, you're actually watching it. You're not turning away from it. You're not running from it. And you see the whole event in its entirety. And according to our toad, that's more impactful to you than it if it actually huh. happened to. Uh-huh. Okay. So all of this together, like shocking people out of their system, getting to the core of emotion and everything. I think when you get as many elements that can attack, that can attack the senses when they're able to do so, especially when making a point about the cruelties that life can wreak upon anyone, mm -hmm. this is his influence in theater. I mean, like I was saying, I was watching that movie last night and there's just all this like imagery that you're seeing like a guy pulls several skulls out of a bag and they have crowns on them and you're like 
oh God, those actually were people at one point and they died violently. And, mm-hmm. and these people are flaunting that. And the next scene you see them, these people who are flaunting that being kicked down a hole and you follow them all the way down until you can't see them anymore. That's the only part I've seen actually of the 300 yep. is the people getting kicked in the hole. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I was like, <gasps> I don't think I can watch yeah. this. Now, I also I also tried to think about it like, okay, so are, are like horror movies this? Mm-hmm. Yes, they can be, mm-hmm. but not the terrifically, horribly gory ones. Mm-hmm. Like that stuff is just blood for blood's sake. You know, mm-hmm. you're not trying to teach anybody anything. They're like, well, no, Jason uh, killed that girl because she had sex a moment ago. Uh, no, no, that's just, uh, that's just yeah, putting those two things together. You can be way more disturbing. Have you ever seen, whether in English or German, have you ever seen Funny Games? Oh, no, but I've heard all about it. And no, <sighs> I'm, no, 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 no. No, that might be one I never see because I'm like, no, uh, I-, I put myself in there. Oh, uh, it's... I, I, I like have been mad that it exists and um, it's been in the back of my mind the whole time because oh, you've been talking about the theater of cruelty. I feel like uh, yeah. I I am so mad at the person who made me watch it. I watched it in German. I and Oh I, God. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's, it, it's actually probably easier than watching it in English because it's, at least, I mean, I don't know German enough to like, yeah. I didn't watch it with subtitles. So there's at least that bit of like distance yeah, but I was yeah. like, you know, American cinema. You're like, okay, here's the part where everything turns around and there's a happy ending, but nope. um, it's uh, it's brutal, and yeah. and that's what I think of as the theater of cruelty. And and, and yeah. but I don't know what the point of that is. Even even in the before times, before COVID, and you know everything went to hell. Uh, you know, we would watch like The Walking Dead before dinner or before, right. dinner, before bedtime. And then I would joke, yeah. like, okay, we need to watch like a YouTube video of baby ducklings. And then we were yes. like, no, actually we should do that because we yes. just want to go to bed. Yeah. But yeah. then like shows like that are really good. And it's like mm-hmm. Breaking Bad and The Walking Dead and even The Sopranos. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I had to like, I really had to be in the mood to watch it. Yes. I'm like, I need, to, I'm going to put, myself through a psychological disturbance when you come home from work and you, oh. you're, you're not in the mood for psychological disturbance no 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 you know and i think i think more than anything it met his time a little bit more mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because i think so many things had happened so fast <laughs> in that world like you were saying the technology had mm-hmm. just rushed in and made everything so complex all at once that we weren't seeing what it was doing to us as a humanity and, yeah, yeah. you know, I've said it on this show a couple of times. Um, yeah. After COVID, well, that was a horrible thing that happened to literally everybody. Like yeah. everybody in the world was affected by that. And mm-hmm. for the next little while, theater maybe doesn't need to be so damn heavy. Yeah. You know, let's, yeah. let's, let's appreciate the things that we have. Let's analyze the things that are good. Let's, let's appreciate joy and happiness mm-hmm. again. And that's what I've been promoting a lot, but we're going to have a time come up again where we're going to need to address some things that are ugly. But right now we're comforting the afflicted and then yep. later we will afflict the comforted. There's yep. there's a time and a place for both. Now, I said, I've been saying, we're going to come back to this a little bit and I'm going to get to my third assignment for you yes. in this whole thing. Which I've been wondering how, uh-huh. I, yes. I said, listen to episode four. Mm-hmm. I said, listen to some Gamelan music. And then mm-hmm. I said, Shannon, go watch the music video for the band Corn, Freak on a Leash. 
Yes. And you were going, how does all this put together? Well, yes. when I first learned about Theater of Cruelty, mm-hmm. I go to the guy who gave me the name for this show, Euripides Humanities, Tom Empey, who was my teacher at Casper College in Casper, Wyoming. And I said, okay, is this still in existence? He goes, yeah. I go, where? He goes, it's all over the place. I said, what? And he said, watch MTV. And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, you've seen that, uh, that video for Corn, Freak on a Leash? That's theater of cruelty. The whole story of the video is from the cover of the album that that's on, uh, Follow the Leader. Little girl playing hopscotch up this terrible cliff that is overlooking like a junkyard or something. If she Mm -hmm. goes, if she plays hopscotch to the end of that thing, she's going to fall and die. Mm -hmm. What they do in the music video is they make that an animated cartoon Mm -hmm. and the girl is going up the thing and a, the security guard for the junkyard sees her and runs after her, but he trips and his handgun falls out of his belt and shoots and a, and the bullet for some reason is in slow motion. So already we're taking reality as we know it and twisting it. So mm-hmm. it's more uncomfortable for us to watch shoots right at the girl, but then out a poster on some guy's wall of the cover of that album, that mm-hmm. bullet then goes through an entire neighborhood, an entire city smashing things like uh, gallons of, of milk and, and water, water coolers, coolers and, uh, and all yeah. like very everyday for I, some of them, mm-hmm. I, I, I have a feeling that like they had just come up with some new technology that allowed a yeah. director to do some cool stuff. Yeah. So most yeah. of the stuff that explodes is stuff that looks cool when it's yeah. exploding, but it's yeah. also like mundane everyday things. So yep. it's very much like breaking through your reality of yes, absolutely. what you think is your everyday existence. And it destroys everything in its path Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. it's an absolute statement against gun violence and you're like Mm -hmm. okay then it gets to where you see the band corn they look like they're in this in giant black garbage sack that has Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of holes poked into it so the light is shooting in all kinds of Mm -hmm. directions through the perforations in the bag and their music is so discordant and yeah. and the way he sings is so unnatural to a voice. It's like, I went, oh my God, that is theater of cruelty. Mm-hmm. It's a music video. And now we know how <laughs> the walls got all those holes in them. <laughs> <laughs> they just, people's bullets just keep coming yep. through the room. And it, but it also oh. is like a statement about, I found it like a feminist anti-authoritarian yes. statement as yep. well. And I was like, yep. oh, maybe I need to stop hating corn. Because <laughs> <laughs> when you were like, okay, go watch this corn video. I was like, do I have to? <laughs> <laughs> do I have to? I'm going to end I'm going to end all this with one article I read that just had this beautiful statement about what Artaud's work actually is. Mm-hmm. Artaud's work in his many fields is consistent and interwoven but it is not easy to define. It is above all a monument to frustration. One mm. long scream of protest at the inadequacy of language of human society of the body and the mind. Artaud was a revolutionary who was fighting for the overthrow of the constraints that define consciousness. 
it is as if he could just make out the penumbra of some spiritual essence on the far edge of his perception and was maddened by his inability to seize it. He described all his work as, quote, documents. That is, not the poems, essays, polemics they seem to be, and certainly not art, but mere records of his flailing attempts to reach the elusive substance of truth. Dang. And that is the story of Antonin Artaud and the Theater of Cruelty. Well, I feel like my brain has been broken, so hopefully... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Well, there we go. Theater of Cruelty. And that's something. Oh, and I just love it. And I can see the influence everywhere. Yeah. Shannon, that was awesome. Holy cow. Yes, I get talked for another three hours. For my listeners, I'm going to be signing off for Shannon Corder and myself, Aaron Odom. This is Aaron from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming. And this has been another episode of Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast. I'll get one out to you in another two weeks and I will see you at intermission. <laughs>